Welcome to Lovers Forever. In the last episode, we learned about Frank and Ava's lives through the 1940s. Now it's 1949, and they've just had their first date together. A Wild West shoot 'em up kind of night that ends with Frank's publicist chartering a plane so he can pay off the cops. Back in LA, they had a quiet date. Dinner at an Italian restaurant in Hollywood. Unusually for them, they were both sober. This time, she asked him about Nancy. Frank told her it had been over for years, but continued to name only for the sake of his kids. He spoke of his children with a sense of loyalty and love. We don't really know what else they talked about. Perhaps as they sat there, they simply felt the inexorable pull of fate. That's sometimes what love is, a feeling that you're fated for this person. The first time Frank met her, he'd felt a strange jolt behind his navel. Maybe it was because he knew, even then, that he was born for her. They went to Ava's house in Nichols Canyon that night and made love for the first time. Ava writes in her memoir, quote, Oh God, it was magic. We became lovers forever, eternally. Big words, I know. But I truly felt that no matter what happened, we would always be in love. Their love must have been magical, for there was trouble coming. As we'll see, Frank and Ava faced opposition from almost every direction. Their love, therefore, must have been extraordinary in order for them to persevere. Shortly after the affair began in earnest, Ava ran into Lana Turner. They were friends, but Ava had been avoiding her. If you remember from our previous episode, Frank and Lana had had an affair that at least Alana was serious. She had confided to Ava many times about it. They'd been photographed together and it had worked Nancy's last nerve. But in the end, Frank had unceremoniously dumped her and Alana was heartbroken. According to Ava's biographer, this is what the women said to each other. Darling, said Alana, I hear you've been seeing Frank. You haven't fallen for him, have you? We're in love, baby, said Ava. A pucker ran across Lana's alabaster brow. Don't let him hurt you, sweetie. He'll lead you on. He'll tell you whatever you want to hear, but you mustn't believe him. We're gone for each other. This is for keeps. He'll never leave that wife of his. I'm warning you. He's going to leave her if he wants to be with me. And he does. Have they separated, darling? I haven't read anything in the papers about it. Initially, Frank and Ava kept to her house in the hills and the homes of sympathetic friends. They avoided being seen. Which does show how serious Frank was about Ava. Normally he was a pretty messy guy who didn't exactly take pains to hide his extramarital affairs. 
The only reason his philandering remained somewhat hidden from the public, beyond the photo of him with Lana Turner, the occasional blind item, was because of a deferential press corps. Celebrities were afforded a lot more privacy back then compared to now. Movie studios also had robust systems in place to quash any unflattering news about their stars. And Frank himself had George Evans, his heroic publicist, who negotiated and bargained with reporters to keep Frank's image clean. Or at least, as clean as it could be. And so the fact that Frank and Ava were careful at first may have also been a wise tactic of self-preservation, especially for Frank. He was also supposedly negotiating with his wife, who remained unmoved by his declarations of love for another woman. Even with their clandestine rendezvous, there were still people watching them, namely Howard Hughes's network of spies. Howard reached out to Ava and demanded he meet her for a late dinner. He had information she could not stand to ignore, he said. This man you've been seeing, you have to stay away from him. Howard told her that Frank had some, quote, very shady associates, criminal associations, and things you are better off not knowing about, end quote. This was clearly a reference to the mob. We're in love, Howard, Ava said. Listen to me. This character has got women all over town. He then told her about Frank's collection of call girls, using a racial slur to describe the black sex workers for which Frank had a special preference. Ava stormed out on Howard. In her memoir, Ava essentially accuses Howard Hughes of making up lies about Frank, not just in this instance, but on multiple other occasions. But how plausible is that really? Hughes spied on Ava. Why wouldn't he spy on Frank too? He was a very paranoid man, and a very racist man, who probably resented Sinatra for being Italian. And by telling her about Frank's call girls, Hughes was also telling on himself in a way. Howard had girls stashed all over town, including actress Faith Demerg, whom he started romancing and surveilling when she was just 15. In fact, Ava had almost been killed in 1943 when Faith, who was crazed with jealousy, followed Howard and Ava driving home from a date. Ava was sitting on the passenger side, and Demerg chased them into an empty parking lot and then backed up her own car and rammed at the passenger side twice until her car stopped working. Faith was still a minor, only 17. And she'd become totally reliant on Hughes financially and in her career. She was under contract to him at RKO. Ava didn't know about Faith or any of the other girls that Hughes would attempt to manipulate with money, intense surveillance, and promises of movie stardom. So Hughes also had women all over town. Frank was a terrible husband, and I'm not condoning his practices of engaging in anonymous sex while lying about it to his wife, but at least he wasn't trapping teenage girls in financially and emotionally abusive situations. What I am saying is that Howard and Frank were both misogynists to varying degrees, and it takes one to know one. 
Ava must have believed what Howard told her, at least a little, or she must have had her own intuitions. Once they did start venturing out to restaurants and nightclubs, she experienced flashes of jealousy and paranoia every time Frank smiled at a pretty waitress. Frank couldn't or wouldn't turn off the instinct to scan every room for a lovely girl to seduce, even if the loveliest woman in the world was right there by his side. Likewise, all Ava had to do to make Frank jealous was mention her ex-husband Artie Shaw, or Howard Hughes, or Johnny Stampanato, a handsome young thug who'd been pursuing her lately. Stampanato was an associate of mob boss Mickey Cohen, so Frank called Cohen and asked him to come over. There was an urgent matter to discuss. Cohen was just then under 24-hour police observation, so he said no. I want you to do me this favor, said Frank. Tell your Stampanato guy to stop seeing Ava Gardner. Cohen was incredulous that Sinatra would ask him to risk the cops to discuss a case of what he called hot nuts. He was trying to stay the fuck out of prison, for Christ's sakes. This is what you call important, Cohen said. I don't mix in with no guys in their broads, Frank. Why don't you go home to Nancy where you belong? In December of 1949, Ava followed Frank to New York, where he was scheduled to appear on a radio show. The owner of the Copacabana, Jack Entratter, threw Frank a 34th birthday party while he was there. At this party, Ava got to spend some quality time with Frank's mother, Dolly. Dolly had never liked Nancy all that much. Sure, she ran a good household and she had made good babies. But Dolly interpreted Nancy's inherent dignity as being holier than thou. Ava, on the other hand, swore and drank and smoked like a sailor on shore leave. She was so beautiful, but she wore it so lightly as if it meant nothing to her. Dolly was enchanted. She pinched Frank's cheek, congratulating him on getting this great girl. Frank smiled weakly. Even this early on, his affair with Ava, coupled with blow-up fights with Nancy, was wearing him down. This was his first relationship with someone he viewed as a full and equal partner. Ava was just as mercurial, just as demanding, and just as sensitive as he was. More than that, she got under his skin in ways no one else ever could. He nicknamed her La Bruja, or the Witch, for her ability to supposedly read his thoughts. It was impossibly exciting, but also a little frightening to Frank, so used to being the one with the upper hand in the relationship. It's not hard to play armchair psychologist and point out that as a young child, Frank never knew if his mother was going to smother him with kisses or throw her shoe at him and call him a bum. Now Ava was treating him in a similar way, swinging from love to fury in an instant. The jealousy, the freeze-outs, the fights, it was all an elaborate and theatrical form of foreplay. Their sexual chemistry was fairly volcanic, and their makeup sex was white-hot. And why wouldn't it be, between two people with such an uncanny insight into each other? But this kind of all-consuming passion, it can tire a man out. Skitch Henderson, the man who introduced them all those years before, said, She was like a Svengali to him. She was an enigma, 
a mysterious presence. You didn't quite know how she had done it to him, and I'm not sure I wanted to know. At the time, Sinatra had been feuding with his publicist George Evans. Evans, if you'll recall, was the one who smartly capitalized on the early mania from Frank's teenage fans, and who also made Frank's public image one of the consummate family man. The timeline here is somewhat wonky, as Frank's most recent biographer, James Kaplan, describes the feud escalating in early 1949. As I have already addressed before, there are other sources who say the affair hadn't even started then. But whenever it happened, the reason for the feud, ultimately, was Ava herself. George had seen a revolving door of side pieces come and go, but he thought that Ava was a five-alarm fire that would wreck Frank's career. She was too uninhibited. She didn't care all that much about her own career or reputation or even the law. Her biographer says that she'd gotten in trouble with the L.A. Vice Department multiple times for daring to frequent the black bebop and jazz clubs on Central Avenue. Los Angeles was and in many ways remains, a highly segregated city, and the police discouraged quote-unquote race-mixing, especially when a famous, beautiful white woman was doing it. Ava gave no fucks, period. She had genuine friendships with black performers, including Lena Horne and Herb Jeffries, and if she wanted to go to a jazz club with them, she did. She was also casually irreverent just for the fun of it, when shaking hands for the first time with a new acquaintance, her salutation was, Do you suck? There were also rumors of her engaging in all kinds of sexual adventures. Affairs with women, orgies, crazy things. Most of these rumors are impossible to verify now, and it's highly likely that most of them were fabricated in the first place. But the fact that they existed at all scared the hell out of MGM. And threats fell on deaf ears with her. She'd give as good as she got. If the studio threatened suspension for her behavior, she'd say she was thinking of leaving the business, going to college, or going back to North Carolina. She was a valuable property at that time, so MGM put up with it all. But to George Evans, Ava could only be seen as a liability. And he tried, unwisely, to pry Frank away from her. This had the opposite of its intended effect. The more that Evans told Frank that Ava would destroy his career and that he couldn't have her, the more he wanted her. Ava sensed this antagonism from Evans, and she didn't like being disrespected. On one occasion, Evans obviously ignored her and asked Frank to excuse himself so the two men could talk in private. Ava grabbed her coat and was off, vanishing for days. When Frank finally got a hold of her again, he asked her, Why do you gotta be like that? And she said, Why do you let that jerk tell you what to do? Is he in charge, or are you in charge? Maybe I should go out with him, if he's so fucking special. Practically overnight, George Evans had gone from a trusted advisor to an obstacle in the way of Ava's respect for Frank. Frank was so in love with Ava that he was willing to do anything to keep her. So, Frank fired George Evans. While all this was going on, there was a rare spot of good fortune for Frank. 
His second on-screen pairing with Gene Kelly, a musical called On the Town, got great reviews and did well at the box office. It set records at Radio City for the highest single-day gross. But it was ultimately Gene Kelly's movie, and Frank was second fiddle and second billing. He hadn't been able to sing any of the best ballads in the movie either. He was tired of playing a sailor, and he let that fact be known. Louis B. Mayer threatened Frank that his contract was in jeopardy, and so was Ava's, if they didn't stop behaving so indiscreetly. By January of 1950, roughly a year later or only a few months, depending on whose timeline you believe, Frank flew back to New York to talk to George Evans. He had had another feud in falling out with his close friend and advisor, Manny Sachs. Maybe he sensed he would need somebody on his side, especially someone who could handle the press. He explained that he had never felt this way about anyone before, and he intended to marry Ava. And Frank asked Evans for his help, which was an unusual display of humility from Frank. Evans offered his hand, and Frank shook it. Back in L.A., Nancy was furious. She believed he was in New York to visit Ava. In fact, Ava was still in Los Angeles, so he was technically on solid ground, but the affair was obviously still happening. But Nancy threw him out of the house when he got back. She had finally started to come to terms with the fact that Frank would never change. He'd started doing live appearances again for the first time in two years. One of these was a gig at the opening of a giant hotel in Houston, the Shamrock. On January 26, 1950, Frank and his friend Jimmy Van Heusen set out for Houston on Jimmy's plane. They landed to refuel in El Paso, and an airport manager ran out on the tarmac to hand Frank an urgent message. He must call George Evans' office at once. A secretary answered the phone. Evans had died of a heart attack at age 48. He had gotten into a shouting argument the night before his death with a reporter. They'd been arguing over Frank and his affair with Ava Gardner. It's not implausible that Frank's first thought upon hearing the news was, it was my fault, I killed him. Of course, we don't know. But his actions following Evans' death bear this out. He rescheduled the Shamrock show and flew to New York for the funeral. This is significant because Frank hated funerals and largely avoided them whenever he could. The day after, he sent Evans' widow the 14000 he had owed George Evans. Soon, he'd put their son Philip on the Sinatra payroll for life. In the first week of February, Frank went to the Shamrock to perform there. A few minutes into the show, with the house lights down, there was a stir near the front of the stage. It was Ava. She'd impulsively flown to Houston to surprise him, defying the studio bosses in order to do so. Whispers swirled across the room, and Frank did little to discourage more speculation. For the rest of the night, Frank directed every song to Ava and Ava only, as if she were the only one there. Afterwards, the mayor of Houston took Frank, Ava, Jimmy Van Heusen, and several others to dinner at an Italian restaurant 
Vincent Sorrento. The owner of the restaurant was thrilled to have two real movie stars at his place, so he had tipped off the Houston Post, and they sent a photographer. The next morning, the wires reported the following. Frank Sinatra squired Siren Ava Gardner last night and almost got a chance to show off his fancy footwork in the art of fisticuffs. The Houston photographer Eddie Schisser had asked Sinatra to pose for a quick photo with his spaghetti. Frank replied that there would be no picture, with or without spaghetti. The two men argued, and Sinatra got out of his chair as if he were about to hit the photographer. The wire report ends with this detail. Miss Gardner tried to cover her face with her hands. If George Evans hadn't already died, a debacle like this might have killed him anyway. Of course, the main reason why Frank got upset was because he didn't want a photograph of him and Ava out there in the world. It was incriminating. Ava's attempt to hide herself shows that she understood that too. But the other reason why he got so mad was because of the casual racism in the suggestion that he would be photographed eating spaghetti. The implicit assumption was that an Italian-American should be photographed eating spaghetti. It was a form of ethnic stereotyping, and Frank had every right to be annoyed about it. Meanwhile, the afternoon that the story broke, Nancy had the locks changed on the house. The affair was truly public now, and it was the final straw for a woman who had suffered innumerable humiliations. Mafia boss Willie Moretti sent Frank a telegram. I'm very much surprised by what I have been reading in the newspapers between you and your darling wife. Remember, you have a decent wife and children. You should be very happy. Regards to all, Willie Moore. Willie Moore was one of his aliases. On February 15th, the gossip columnist Hedda Hopper ran a piece in the Los Angeles Times that began thusly. Nancy Sinatra has finally decided to separate from her husband Frank, claiming that her married life with the crooner has become unhappy and almost unbearable. But I do not see a divorce in the foreseeable future, she said yesterday. First, a property settlement will be worked out and Nancy will ask for custody of their three children. Ava was immediately barraged with hate mail. She received all kinds of letters accusing her of being a scarlet woman and much worse. It was not uncommon for the letters to begin with a salutation such as, Dear Bitch. The Legion of Decency threatened to ban her movies. She got mail from Catholic priests and nuns at some parochial schools asked the students to pray for Mrs. Sinatra. Nowadays, celebrity infidelity is still lurid, but also so quotidian that we've come to expect it. It happens all the time. Celebrities cheat on each other, usually with other celebrities. But there were multiple reasons why Frank and Ava's affair caught fire. First, there was the fact that this was America in 1950. We were a country of buttoned-up, main-street, decent, family-first values. We were conventional. We were morally upright. 
We were the city on the hill that had won the war and showed the rest of the world what it meant to stand up to the fascists. At least, that was America's idea of itself. Second, there was the established image, built and maintained by George Evans, of Frank as a family man, despite the philandering reality. Third, Ava had up to this point been mostly typecast as a femme fatale after her breakout role in The Killers. Her looks only corroborated the impression that she was a femme fatale in real life. She'd already been divorced twice, even though those men had treated her really badly, and in both cases she tried hard to make the marriages work. But her divorces made it easy for the public to find fault with her. Additionally, there was Nancy herself and what she represented. She had a plain-spoken beauty, but she wasn't spectacular to look at. She'd struggled to lose pregnancy weight. She'd taken the back seat to her husband, who was away traveling much of the time, in order to raise their children and maintain a household. Housewives all across post-war America could identify with Nancy. They couldn't identify with gorgeous, uninhibited, glamorous Ava. In the swampy underworld of the American psyche in 1950, a woman like Ava was distinctly threatening to other women, not just because of her intoxicating beauty. It was because she already lived as a liberated woman in many ways. She wouldn't stay in miserable marriages. She had an adventurous sex life. She went out drinking by herself on weeknights at a time when women just didn't do that. She was friends with whoever she wanted to be friends with and had affairs with married men. She lived her life on her own terms, consequences be damned. And there must have been a lot of women in the America of 1950 who envied, resented her enormously because they wished they could have an affair with the married guy down the street. They wished they could have a life of financial independence and freedom instead of a life of comfortable subservience. They wished they could have mink coats instead of cotton house dresses. But none of these desires could be explicitly stated or even entertained. And so Nancy's all over America lashed out at the avatar of their suppressed, smothered dreams. One letter to Ava kind of spells this out. Quote, you know there are millions and millions of women like me Wives and mothers who have had to make sacrifices for their husband and children, and when we see one of our own kind, Nancy Sinatra, receive such a deal because of a person like Ava, it hurts us to the soul. End quote. Other letters were just more bluntly hateful. Though I don't want to wish Ava harm, one begins. I do wish she'd fall down and break her neck. There was also the issue of Ingrid Bergman. Yes, that Ingrid Bergman. Bergman, like Frank, was famously married with children. Two of her most famous roles were as Joan of Arc and as a nun in The Bells of St. Mary's. In Casablanca, she played an adulteress, sure, but one who ultimately sacrifices true love for the good of the world. While still married to her Swedish doctor husband, she'd had an affair with Italian film director Roberto Rossellini on the set of the film Stromboli. During the production, in Italy, Bergman became pregnant with Rossellini's child, 
which she had tried to keep secret. Enter Howard Hughes. Who else? His studio, RKO, was distributing the movie, and he decided to break the news of Bergman's pregnancy without her knowledge or consent in an attempt to parlay the ensuing scandal into ticket sales. Gossip columnist Luella Parsons reported the scoop, which at that time was beyond the pale for a gossip columnist to do. The report did cause a sensation, but Howard Hughes was not particularly good at reading a room, and this scandal was repulsive to the American people, not enticing. The movie was a bomb in the States. For some reason, a senator named Edwin C. Johnson decided that Bergman's affair was of national importance. On March 15th, he denounced her on the Senate floor as an apostle of degradation, a powerful influence for evil, and he threatened to have the Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce conduct hearings on the serious moral questions raised by Movieland's lurid headlines. So there were two infidelity scandals from two major stars of the era, happening concurrently, each serving to amplify the depravity of the other. Ingrid Bergman essentially had to leave the country, returning to Italy with Rossellini. There had been other scandals, too, including Bob Mitchum getting busted in a likely sting operation for marijuana possession, which had landed him in prison in 1949. And the paranoia about communism was ramping up. February of 1950 saw Senator Joseph McCarthy rocket to prominence because he claimed he had evidence that communists had infiltrated the State Department. The blacklist, an unofficial but very real development, continued quietly in Hollywood. So there was a growing sense in America that everything was coming apart at the seams. Joan of Arc was having the baby out of wedlock with an Italian. The State Department was full of communists. The Soviets plotted, unseen and unpredictable, ready to drop H-bombs. The sky could fall down at any moment. Frank and Nancy weren't really a loving couple. And he'd been having an affair with someone else for months. Frank was starting to come apart at the seams himself. Hold up in New York with Ava at the Hampshire house for an eight-week engagement at the Copa. He was struggling with extreme anxiety. I found myself needing pills to sleep, pills to get started in the morning, and pills to relax during the day, he said. He and Ava were both drinking heavily, too. Three or four martinis before dinner. Then wine. Then more cocktails. The negative attention from the American people and the negative press, had Ava looking forward to getting out of the country for her next film, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. It was shooting on location in London and in Catalonia, Spain, starting in April. Her ambivalence towards Frank was growing. Being with him meant getting hate mail. It meant being hounded by photographers. Her new movie, shooting on location so far away, offered the opportunity for a soft exit from the relationship. Would she take it, or would she stand by her man? While Frank was in New York, his daughter, little Nancy, called him every day 
asking, Daddy, when are you coming home? Her tiny, desolate voice on the fuzzy long-distance calls. It made Frank's hands shake. Thanks for listening to Lovers Forever. The episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Amber Nelson. All the music is from Epidemic Sound. The logo was designed by Abby Scheel. If you like Lovers Forever, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can find us online at Lovers Forever Podcast on Instagram.